to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the podcast, we are following one person's journey with addiction recover. Also, the intricate interplay of anger within the context of women's intimate relationships. And also, why and how we grieve, plus why nursing agencies are harming Canada's healthcare system, and why everyone is throwing caution to the wind these days and attending events, even when they're sick, and what you should do if you have the common cold. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in uh, on this daylight saving time. No S on that. It's not plural. Just a couple little factoids about daylight saving time. Many people render the term second word in its plural form, but the word saving acts as part of an, an adjective, an adjective rather than a verb. So the singular is grammatically correct just in case you were wondering, but we do hear a lot of people saying daylight savings time. And, you know, I mean, give them a break. Who's perfect anyway? Not me. That's for sure. You can always call the show 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Call or text me. You know, at the end of the program, we're going to be talking about um, COVID a little bit um, because last week's question was, tell me why you don't want to get COVID. I had so many responses and so many people that I noticed out there are so responsible and they're also doing such amazing work. So I'm looking forward to that toward the end of the show. But if you have a little factoid about daylight saving time or what you like about it or dislike about it, 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. I have a little factoid for you. It's a little known fact at Port Arthur, a town in Ontario that eventually became part of Thunder Bay first used daylight saving time in 1908 after passing a bylaw. But it was Germany was the, that was the first country to adopt the time change on April 30th in 1916 in the middle of the First World War in an effort to conserve electricity. And, you know, although Ben Franklin suggested the idea of daylight savings time, see, there you go. <laughs> daylight saving time. It's, um, he suggested that. So he gets credit for it, but it's not necessarily the case. He suggested that kind of from a satirical standpoint that Parisians could save money on candles in 1784. So he is credited with it, but it was actually Englishman William Willett that led the first campaign to implement daylight saving time. While on an early morning horseback ride around the desolate outskirts of London in 1905, doesn't that just sound wonderful? Willett had an epiphany that the UK should move its clocks forward by 80 minutes between April and October so that more people could enjoy the plentiful sunlight. One of my favorite things to do. The Englishman published the 1907 brochure, The Waste of Daylight, and spent much of his personal fortune evangelizing with the missionary zeal for the adoption of summertime. Year after year, however, the British Parliament stymied the measure and Willett died in 1915 at the age of 58 without ever seeing his idea come to fruition. How sad is that? That's too bad. And then uh, here's something else, is that not all states and countries observe daylight saving time. We certainly see it's kind of state to state in the U.S., um, like Hawaii and most of Arizona. And there's a lot of countries that have chosen to forgo it all together as well. 
And this can lead to confusion when scheduling events or dealing with international business. Um, you know, and you're, you're always sort of double checking the time, you know, I, I had a flight today, so I was like, okay, <laughs> but I've had many flights on daylight saving time. Um, and so I know that my iPhone will automatically be readjusted my um, computer as well. I wear a traditional watch. Um, I don't wear my iWatch anymore, but, um, and so that I had to adjust myself and that kind of tricked me a little bit as well. So it might have tricked you also, but, uh, is this the uh, kind of day that you like? Do you like this day, like saving time in the fall, spring up, fall back? Um, or is it something that you don't look forward to because in association with it is some dark days and also um, health effects and productivity. And that may decrease. You may notice that that decreases. We may get a lot more done in the summertime. The fall time change has been associated with increased risks of mood disorders and a worsening of depression and substance use, particularly amongst men. But it also can happen um, with other with women as well. I mean, for sure, uh, other people can find that it's, um, you know, a challenging time of year, a difficult time of year, um, for you. And, and a lot of people would like to forgo it all together and just forget all about it. Leo, does it affect you? Uh, no, not, I mean, no, no, I think, I think I adjust pretty relatively easy. So yeah. Yeah, I think okay. I adjust relatively easily as well. Um, yeah. Although I do prefer summertime. <laughs> it no, would be yeah, nice. well, by by all means, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer tropical times, but yeah. Uh, well, I it try to I try to make the most of it. So, yeah, well, yeah you're I'm an just, optimistic guy, anyway. I yeah, I try to be because uh, I I see no point in in, in being you know. <laughs> being down on everything else, it's, it's not gonna yeah. it's not gonna make it's gonna it's not gonna be of my benefit. So, yes, and since exactly. we're here, we're talking about our, of our own wealth. So that's what I'm seeking for myself, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it doesn't really affect me. And I try to look at it from a positive perspective, getting that extra hour. And, you know, people, when you remind them of that, they're pretty happy about that as well. Um, but I think with anything, if you go into it with an optimistic attitude and, you know, it is what it is kind of a thing. And also do some strategies. If you do find that you get a little bit moodier during this time or your depression worsens a little bit um, or you're, you notice that you might be increasing your, the use of substances, you know, make note of that. Increase your exercises. Uh, you know, exercise is so beneficial and it actually has been uh, shown to be more effective than antidepressants. So get out there, pound the pavement, break a sweat, um, go to the gym, you know, increase that exercise a bit, cut down on the sugar, cut down on the carbs, you know, try to eat a healthy meal as much as possible. Um, and, you know, stick to good nutrition and stick to a regular sleep routine as well. Try not to get on your computers or your televisions or iPads before bed or while you're in bed. There's other things to do um, while you're in bed, like sleep um, and other such things. Um, but you know what? Just be mindful and just give your be gentle with yourself. Go easy on yourself and and remember, you know, this is a change. This is a bit of a transition, and it might impact you, and and it can impact others around you as well. So keep that in mind that, 
you your moods might be impacting somebody else's life, like your children or your spouse or your parents or grandparents or whatever, or your colleagues. So, you know, just keep that in mind and, and try and be preventive. Try and actually take some action so that that doesn't happen, especially if you notice, you know, this is a tough time of year for you every year. Um, it's time to just really engage in some self-care, get your downtime, get your exercise, make sure you're sleeping well and eating well and cutting down on alcohol consumption and other substances as well, because they can be really detrimental on your mental health. You might be blaming daylight saving time, but it actually could be what you're ingesting or participating in, uh, especially if you're doing that kind of thing alone. We have Phil from Vancouver, British Columbia, calling in. Good evening, Phil. Yes, good evening, Maureen. I love your show. I've been listening to it ever since you've been on the air. Uh, it's oh, very relaxing it's... while I'm lying in bed. So, Oh, thank just, you so much. Yeah, just wonderful show. So I told my GP about you, so she's impressed. So she took your <laughs> name down. She's going to check you out. I'm sure she's not impressed. Yeah. <laughs> um, my question is... Um, I may have hypothyroid, and so I'm sort of feeling slightly traumatized because usually um, my medical is always fantastic. I'm 64 years old now, right? So I'm used Mm -hmm. to not um, having any minor issues. I hope that's all it is. And I guess, um, yeah, my former GP who um, will soon be retiring, was always amazed with my health. But I just wanted to know if hypothyroid is just a natural process of aging as well as is it treated with uh, iron supplements or is it treated with some other kind of medication? You could sort of read my mind where I'm going with this. Right, right. You don't want to go the supplement route, let me just tell you that. You do want to be under the care of your doctor. It's it's a... Mm-hmm. Um, underactive thyroid basically and do you have some symptoms that are yes i do like i feel had blood tests uh yeah i went in uh for a second one and um my gp is supposed to call me sometime tomorrow okay and so i'm gonna have a discussion with her but i've been thinking about it and i have the kind of symptoms i've had more sensitivity like slight cramps and uh um, let's say if I have an erection, slight soreness, nothing excruciating when I urinate or have a spontaneous erection when I wake up in the morning, you know, the morning erection kind of thing. Yeah, I don't typically associate that with um, with hypothyroidism. I think more things like fatigue, sensitivity to cold, constipation, yes. dry skin, weight gain, hoarse voice. Yeah, fatigue for sure. Like it uh-huh. seems like everything's in slower motion. Right. And, and is it is it satisfactorily um, treated? Is it easy to treat? It, it is. It's typically easy. It's typically easy to treat. Um, you know, there are some conditions or problems that can lead to hypothyroidism. So your doctor will want to get um, to the bottom of that. Like perhaps it's an autoimmune disease that has caused the um, hypothyroidism. That's one of the most common causes of hypothyroidism. Um, so, you know, you'll just want to work with your doctor, do the test, get the treatment, and, um, you know, typically medications, and it can be easily, easily treated. Oh, so it's not 
typically an ongoing rest of your life kind of thing, or is it? Well, you, you'll probably have to take medication for the rest of your life, but yes. you, know, you want to treat it because if it isn't mm-hmm. treated, it can lead to other health problems like heart problems and peripheral neuropathy and um, uh, a goiter, for example. So the thyroid can become larger. Well, so it's very important to get it treated. Is it expensive medication? Or? I, I don't think so. To no. be honest with you, no, I don't no. think so. Okay, well, I really appreciate your time. You're so welcome. Thanks for the call and thanks for tuning in, Phil. Appreciate it. Good luck with your health. Okay, bye-bye. All right, take care. All right, uh, yes, you might have questions as well, one 877 399 And somebody else has another. <laughs> William in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Hello, William. Oh, good morning. It's Dave in Thunderby, actually. But anyway, I oh. go by the name William. But anyway, okay. back in 19, I want to talk about the daylight saving team. Mm-hmm. The Lakehead City, Port Arthur, and Fort William. It was the first place in the world to vote to adopt daylight saving time in 1908. Followed oh. quickly by Fort William, which was a sister city. We're now Thunder Bay. The local yes. councils agreed with a suggestion that gaining an hour of daylight in the spring would leave more time for the evenings for leisure and sporting activities after a day of work. Oh, interesting. And then a few years later, it, the, the, they Fort William agreed on it, and then it says farther down, in 1911, the British Parliament debated <laughs> the Daylight Saving Bill, which read in part, in the cities of Fort William, Port Arthur, the principle of the bill has been in operation for the past three years. All objections have been forgotten. There you go. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that little history lesson. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. You know, you never know what you find in the paper. Somebody wrote on it about uh, it's in our local Chronicle Journal. It was written uh, by a fellow by Mr. Patterson. Patterson. Anyway, you do take that- care. That is wonderful. You too, Dave. Bye-bye now. Thanks for the call. Thanks for tuning in. We're not going to have too much time for this segment, probably about a minute. So I'm going to give you the name of this book. If you have, and you know what? Who doesn't have problems with intimate relationships? It's it's common. It, you, it doesn't necessarily have to be your spouse. It can be a friend. It can be a relative. It can be a mother-in-law. It can be a sister. Um, but the name of the book, and it's not just limited to for women, but it is called The Dance of Anger, and it's a woman's guide to changing the patterns of intimate relationships. It's by Harriet Lerner. She's a clinical psychologist and psychotherapist. It's a fabulous book. And the central theme of the book revolves around the intricate interplay of anger within that context. And, you know, this, these, this anger leads to miscommunication, leads to anger, leads to festering. You see all the negativity that occurs in relationships when they're not healthy. And this book imparts invaluable perspectives and counsel to empower you in comprehending and skillfully confronting the challenges and disputes that surface in your various relationships, whether it's, as I mentioned, romantic, familial, or friendships. And, you know, there's an overview of the key themes um, that are like patterns of anger. And so Harriet delves into the patterns of anger that women often experience in their relationships, like how women may suppress their anger, become overly accommodating or express their 
anger in unhealthy ways, like gossiping, talking behind the person's back instead of talking directly to the person. And the book also emphasizes the importance of women finding their voice and understanding their own power in the relationships. There's so much to this book. It's just awesome. I'm excited about my next guest. Um, you've heard his voice before, and there were so many text messages and emails that I received from you that I decided to invite him back um, because we're talking about addiction. <clears throat> and it's something that affects so many people in this country. And, and it's especially when it's somebody that you love and that you care about. Addiction can really impact relationships and quality of life. And it is a disease. It is some, you know, people cannot help it. We lost um, Matthew Perry, not necessarily to addiction, Matthew Perry of friends. I'm a big fan. I felt like Chandler Bing was a friend of mine. He's, he was, a, yeah, I'm sure you can relate to him as a, he may remind you of a, a friend of yours. Um, but it happens to be one of my all time favorite shows. And, um, you know, a lot of people grieve that we're going to be talking about grieving a little bit later, but he, he suffered with addiction. He had a very, um, intimate connection to Canada. He was a, a childhood friend of, of the, um, of Justin Trudeau. And, um, you know, he also was raised in, partly raised in Ottawa um, of his life, uh, born in Massachusetts, Williamstown, Massachusetts, but um, wrote a book and wanted to be remembered as somebody who helped people um, through their alcohol and drug addiction. And he certainly helped a number of people. He wrote a book. There's been a, a foundation established in his name. He set up a recovery house for men uh, with addiction issues. So this is a subject that touches a lot of hearts. And that's why I'm delighted to have Michael Walsh back on the program. He's a recovery coach, an in invitational interventionist, a family coach and consultant. And he has a particular online recovery addiction treatment program. And we're also going to be joined by Michael's clients, uh, client as well. And his client's name is Shane. He's joining us on the line also. Good evening, Michael. How are you? Good evening, Maureen. Very well. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here with you tonight. Well, I'm delighted to have you back because I really like real life stories and I'm delighted that your client is sharing their real life story as well. Um, Shane, are you there? Oh, I'm here. Oh, hi, Shane. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm pleased to be here. Oh, great. Nice to tea meet you. A new word, telephone meet you. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> joining us by phone. Um, so thank you so much. Um, so let's just quickly um, recap quickly, Michael, um, just around addiction. What, what's a, just a general definition of addiction and how does it affect people's lives? Hmm. Well, I think the definition varies uh, for every, you know each individual. I think it depends on how they arrive at the place that they're looking to create change. I sort of look at it as a kind of low to moderate consumer of their particular substance of choice to someone who uh, you know has a sort of extreme consumption of alcohol or their particular substance of choice and. Each of those categories will perhaps uh, dictate, if you will, what the course of treatment will be. So, you know, oftentimes uh, people, they, their substance that they're using affects not only themselves, but their families, maybe their work, their finances, all sorts of things. And again, it, the, the degree to which it affects all of those areas depends on uh, the amount that the person 
is consuming and, you know, whether they get ahead of it or not, or whether it sort of goes on for a longer period of time where it might be a little bit harder to, to figure things out for themselves. So, uh, you know, that's sort of my, I guess, um, anecdotal definition, but I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of clients and um, I, you know, I'm not going to give you a clinical definition because I, I don't have one. Um, mm-hmm. Nope. With, no, I appreciate that. me at the moment. Yeah. No problem. Um, so you've also, you work with an established recovery online addiction treatment program. Tell me about that. It's different from a 12, a 12-step program, if you will, or AA, which a lot of people are very familiar with, or inpatient uh, recovery programs. Tell me about your particular recovery program that you work with. Yeah. Um, the program is called Home-Based Recovery Online Addiction Treatment, and there's kind of a hierarchy of treatment you have at the top, you know, inpatient treatment, and then sort of lower down, there's like an outpatient, either intensive outpatient in person or intensive outpatient online. And then sort of lower down, there would be like counseling and say recovery coaching and maybe some support groups. So we kind of fit in the middle. Online addiction treatment is something that uh, not only was born out of COVID, it had been sort of developed before that, but it really started to take shape uh, when people couldn't um, necessarily attend some of these treatment programs in person. So it's um, people would experience pretty much uh, in terms of content, psychoeducational content and skills building um, content, exactly what they would experience at an inpatient or outpatient treatment center, except they're accessing it through an online portal with our particular program, there is no therapy component, but we've added a uh, immersive recovery coaching experience. So there is a lot of very intensive recovery coaching, one-on-one, um, several days out of the program. So we combine psychoeducational content, skills building content, and recovery coaching and packaged it into an online learning platform. And it's accessible, not only financially, there's a lot of people who can't afford to pay for like a private inpatient treatment. And also it fits with people's schedules. Uh, Some people just can't leave home because of family obligations or work obligations and, and, or maybe they just fit the criteria for online addiction treatment and they don't need anything more than that. Mm -hmm. And now is this, um, are people expected to be sober to be not using at all is that the goal to be or is it something where they can go for you know because a lot of people have a problem with the fact that or the idea that they'd never be able to drink again they'd never be able to have a beer again Mm -hmm. is this part of of your online addiction treatment program your home-based recovery online addiction treatment program yeah, that's a that's a great question. We do require people to be abstinent for the period of the program, which is usually anywhere from 30 days to, say, two months or three months, depending on the client. But mostly it's for 30 days. So we do ask people to, to be abstinent, and most people can adhere to that. Uh, you know, a recovery is, is often not linear, and we recognize that some people may have a drink or two or a slip throughout the program and there is never any judgment. I, you know, we work with that client to figure out how to hit reset, but to answer your question, we do ask people to be abstinent and, and then what they do after that is completely up to them. We hope Uh through the process of the program that they see that perhaps their substance of choice 
is um, better, like not in their life through the process of change and recovery and the program and coaching. And for a lot of people, when they stop for 30 or 60 or 90 days, they're like, oh, my God, this is like this is so new. And it's Mm -hmm. like quite amazing. So right. And and Shane. Shane, who also joins me on the line, is a client of Home-Based Recovery Online Addiction Treatment Program and actually a particular client of Michael Walsh. Um, Shane, thanks again for joining the program. Um, And I'd appreciate it if you could share a bit of your story with the listeners. Well, it's... um, I came to find Michael... uh, I found myself not at rock bottom or anything, but uh, definitely in a hard spot. Um, found uh, Michael online. Um, you what know, was your up. hard spot, if you don't mind? What was your hard spot? You uh, just a sub, uh, you know substance. Uh, found myself drinking uh, more than I should have been. Uh, and got myself uh, in a little bit of trouble at work and so forth. So um, my, basically got told uh, to do a recovery program or find another job. Um so, uh, so, you know, so a little, little bit of a nudge. Um, so I, I searched out uh, numerous uh, programs, um, uh, in-person ones as well as online ones. Um, and then we uh, spoke with Michael as well as some of his staff uh, and then actually had just started to take his program um, over a 30-day period and then uh, subsequently um, uh, carrying on for uh, uh, follow-up sessions uh, after that. So um, mm-hmm. it, it's been a journey. It hasn't always been easy. Um, there's been times where it's, you didn't think it was going to end. Um, you know, it's just carrying on, doing the same thing, but it's, it's actually been a, a good process and a process that the program might be over, but the experience and the learning or, or the going through it, it hasn't stopped. one 9898 That's one 9898 If you have any questions, thoughts, if you've suffered yourself with addiction or excessive alcohol use. Um, Shane, were you, did it, um, were you drinking uh, by yourself? Did you were you um, unable to stop drinking once you started drinking, um, like binge drinking? Were you um, was it affecting your relationships uh, outside of work as well? What other issues were you having? It, it was mostly to get away from work, um, you know, and then it, it affected obviously what was happening for myself at work. And then uh, what you did, I didn't realize at the time was, yes, it was affecting um, my home uh, relationship with my wife and so forth. Um, so it, it, in, the, in the long run, it could have, you know, what wasn't rock bottom could have become rock bottom for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone's rock bottom is different. And I think we all think of rock bottom as somebody's out on the street and has no money and no place to live. But that's not necessarily the definition of rock bottom. I think people have their own rock bottom. It might be some words that a child has said to them or a situation that occurred in their life or, or something may have happened at work. Um, and people think, oh, you know, uh, the, the rock bottom to wake me up kind of kind of a thing. Um, did you think, oh, when, when they told you this at work to either get help or lose your job, did you think, how can I never drink again? Like, what were your thoughts? 
right away was just how could I get my job back? Um, uh, part of it was I didn't have a problem, so like just ignore it. Um, you know, I could always get another job, uh, and then you know, let a day go by or so, um, and then you started to realize that yeah, maybe it isn't. You know, it was time to to maybe change or seek out um, some guidance, um, that sort of thing. Um, the, it, it was actually, it was actually in the in the long run a very good thing, um, uh, just just for everything that else that happened. I was able to get help, um, talk over some problems, um, and then get myself back on track. Uh, and it's been a great experience. We're talking about alcohol addiction and a home based online recovery treatment program. Many people get addicted to alcohol because it causes your brain to release dopamine and other endorphins, and it also produces feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. The chemicals can also act as natural painkillers, and different people's brains react differently to alcohol. But the drive to avoid dealing directly with an unpleasant issue is almost always at the heart of an unhealthy coping mechanism like using alcohol or other substances. And, and alcohol is a classic example as it provides immediate relief, but it doesn't address the problem at heart. And that is why alcohol abuse is considered to be an unhealthy coping mechanism. I have two guests that we're talking about with about this right now. Michael Walsh, he is a recovery coach and also his client, Shane. And we're talking about a particular um, online, home-based recovery online addiction treatment program. Thanks, Michael and Shane, for staying on the line. Thank you, Maureen. And you're welcome, and thanks for sharing your story. I have somebody from Hamilton, Ontario, um, who said, speaking from my experience of 25-plus years of sobriety, I would have a hard time with this program. I needed the structure and fellowship of AA. Um, Shane, what are your thoughts on, on that? How did you feel uh, that this program, why did this program work for you and that you could do it by yourself online at home, um, versus going to an AA meeting? Was that something you'd even thought about? I did start before I did the program, I started going to AA. So it wasn't like the program I was doing it alone. Um, uh, the very beginning of the program, I was meeting with Michael um, via Zoom uh, daily. Uh, so even yeah, it's also laid out uh, schedule-wise. So it never, even though you're uh, like what you would call self-paced or whatever, it never felt like that. So and I never felt like I was doing it alone. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I guess I never. I, I, you, I felt like I had support. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I also had my wife there with me. Um, so there, there was, and I guess that's that was capable. Um, there was a a, a, a a version of the program where it would just be myself online, um, mm-hmm. and I chose not to do that because I didn't feel I would get um what the program was meant to do um mm-hmm. so like i so as much as you're not um physically meeting with somebody there was at least a, a meeting with michael um as well as my aa and so forth so okay so you did aa at at the same time yes for the most part 
one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. Call or text with your thoughts on this subject. Um, another question I had for you, Shane. What are you planning to drink again? Do you think? Are you thinking like, oh, in a few months, I'll just you know have a glass of wine at dinner or. I'll, you know, have a beer with my friends. Is this something in your uh, head? I actually, the only time it, I thought of it was uh, partway through the program uh, when the thought of returning to work um, was happening. And it was, that was when it was like, oh, am I going to be drinking again? Um, that sort of thing. Now that I've returned to work, um, as well as gone out uh, with friends uh, to establishments, it I found that it wasn't um, a big thing. Um, like I, I haven't been, um, and everybody is different. Um, but for myself, it hasn't been a, a want to go out uh, and uh, and drink again. Um, so it's in in does that it, regard, I'm enjoying it. Does it bum you out thinking you can't ever again? No, actually. <laughs> I guess at the beginning to have thought of it that way, yes. Um, sure. Like, oh, this is going to be lame. Like, what are you going to do? Um, I, I do a lot of sailing, um, drinking and sailing, kind of like mm-hmm. boating, that, you know, um, uh, clubs or at the club, that sort of thing. So it's, um, you you thought of it at the beginning, but part mm-hmm. of you learn you learn, um, and it, in the end, it, it, I don't even. Like, I did a lot of camping. Um, like I I I was in situations where you would do it, um, mm-hmm. and it hasn't been like I that those were. And I chatted to Michael about it uh, before I put myself in the situations mm-hmm. um, uh, to to be prepared, um, and I, it hasn't uh, been a problem. Um, could I see it, say, in six months? Possibly. Um, I don't know. What's the best thing about your life now without alcohol versus before? It's, it, it's not something, it's not controlling. I didn't realize how controlling it was. Um, the you alcohol. Were want, the alcohol. You were, wanting, you were wanting it more than going to work. You were, you mm-hmm. know, it was, you, that's what you were going for. Um, it was it was quite shocking, actually. And and a lot of people describe that. They say um, alcohol consumed their life. They thought about it all the time, and that's often a warning sign that somebody might have a problem if you're if you're planning your life around it. Well, I can't believe that segment went up that that quickly. Shane, thank you so much for uh, joining the program and sharing your story. We'll no, check no in with you again later. And Michael, quickly, what's the best way for people to find out information? We've got thirty seconds homebasedrecovery.ca or Google Michael Walsh, Victoria, BC, and my name will come up. I also want to say that there's a psychologist that is part of the program, a social worker. You know, it's just, it's not just me. Oh, yeah. Speak to the fella in Hamilton as well. Um, You know, people approach this in a variety of ways. We have people who see therapists, go to support groups while they're doing the program. It really depends on the person. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Um, And we'll get you back, Michael, for sure. You're welcome. We were just talking about addiction, and I just wanted to read a message that I received um, from somebody. We're talking about home-based recovery. 
addiction and um, treat addiction treatment. Sorry. And so uh, Natalie writes in and says, uh, as a recovering addict, I can tell you that there are more resources available in this country than we know. I love home-based recovery if it's available to someone financially, but I have learned that there are amazing programs that can provide counseling that I never imagined. Not 12-step, not group. It took me time to find them, but keep looking as they are not necessarily listed. Just another option um, for you, because I know this is an important subject. Also, if you have any questions or comments in this uh, segment, or, uh, or this hour of the show, anytime, give us a call or a text. The number to call or text is one 877 399 That's 1-877-399-9898. Coming up in this hour, we're going to be talking about Canada's healthcare system, as I mentioned, and also grief um, and how people grieve and how they grieve differently and, and why they grieve differently and how long it takes. Is there a time limit on it, uh, and also going to be reading your answers to my health quiz from last week, which I was really touched by receiving so many of them and, and really heartfelt messages about the great work so many of you are doing out there and also uh, the best treatment for the common cold because uh, it seems to me a lot of people are turning up to different events and uh, tossing those masks away. Nobody's wearing them anymore, and they're not even caring if they're sick. They're not even testing uh, before they uh, go to an event, even if they are really sick. So anyway, if you're sick, please stay home. Put on a mask if you must go out. Stay away from people. Basic common sense. Anyway, our healthcare system is in trouble and you're not helping. But joining me on the line to help us figure this out is none other than Dr. Tomi Mitchell. She's a medical doctor, family physician, who's also a productivity coach, and her website is wellnessstrategies.com. That's wellnessstrategies.com with three S's in the middle there. Thank you so much for joining me on the line, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much, Maureen. And I must double thank you for joining me at this, what is really a late hour. You're joining from Alberta. And so we've turned the clocks back. And so it's really late. Your, your circadian clock <laughs> is an hour later than right now, correct? Yeah, it's definitely different. But it's all good. Yes. I'm happy to be here. And it, and it affects, affects people very differently as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. But, you know, something that we have to look out for is not only our health, but our health care system. And mm. one of the things that, um, you know, has really was born out of the pandemic in a big way. It really scaled up during the pandemic. Um, it was happening prior to that. But this idea of um, travel nurses or private hiring private nurses through agencies and mm -hmm. that is costing the healthcare system a tremendous amount, not only financially, mm -hmm. but it's also costing them in other ways in terms of vacant shifts and um, not being able to get nurses. A lot of lines are, are vacant as well. What are your yeah. thoughts on this, <clears throat> Dr. Mitchell? I think until we learn to value our healthcare workers, those who are signed up to health regions, um, and stop this back-ended nonsense, we are making the situation worse. Like, it's, it's disgusting what's happening. I understand there was a time and place where this was needed, but it's out of control. Why don't we start by respecting and paying those who are serving the communities properly, giving them the resources they needed, so there's no reason for them to be um, 
going through agencies, right? Um, it's mm-hmm. costing the healthcare system tremendous amounts of money, and it's causing a lot loss of morale for mm-hmm. nurses specifically who've dedicated their time and are they're basically being paying less, but significantly less for doing the same work. And that's and exactly right. Stretch system. Yeah. yeah, people are being moved around for substantial profit, uh, and mm-hmm. not only that. You know, when you bring in the travel nurses or nurses from uh, private agencies, and, you know, maybe there's three or four of them that have, haven't come from that far away, <laughs> to be honest yeah. with you. They might be, you know, coming from 50 miles away, and they're yeah. getting two or three times the amount that you're getting, that the nurses on the ward are getting. And, mm-hmm. you know, that can lower morale, and that can yeah. also impact patient care. Of so course. what happens when patient care is um, affected by, by low morale? It's it's a cascade of problems. It affects not just the patient, their families. It affects the pro- provider, especially because you have a moral and ethical obligation to provide quality care. And if you're seeing that things are not turning out the way they should be ideally, that's distressing. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's horrible. It's the, the impact, and it um, erodes the trust in the healthcare system. At a and time how about medical errors? Would those oh, be huge. increased? Increased errors, medication dosing, timing, so many errors. And, and these errors uh, can lead to serious outcomes, including death. So it's unfortunate, but it's a reality. That's right. And medical errors are, are actually quite common. Um, you know, we're working, nurses are working together on a floor in an, in an ICU, on a step-down unit, recovery room, wherever. You know, it's, it's really about the team and, and yeah. the team dynamics and working together, yeah. delivery of care. But when, when somebody feels that they are not valued that they brought somebody else in that's not been trained, that doesn't have the experience on the ward. I mean, you know, it also leads to, you know, people, nurses not feeling good about themselves can lead to isolation, depression, or seeking another job. There are so many vacancies. What happens when the, the wards aren't staffed in hospitals? Patients get hurt. Care is not provided in a timely manner. That's bottom line. Like Mm -hmm. it's, it's harmful. And some of those things like, um, for example, somebody post-op, we get people up fairly quickly after surgery. Yeah, they get Mm -hmm. delayed. The person who's post-hip may end up sitting in their bed for longer, leading to complications, blood clots, infections, poor um, healing. Like it's, it's profound and like it could, well, significantly impact a patient's life negatively. So it's, there's a huge cascade effect and, it needs to be addressed. Like this needs to be stopped. Mm-hmm. Because and business imagine, owners are, oh, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, imagine as a nurse being in a unit for 20 years, 30 years working for a region and you're teaching somebody who's new, but they're getting paid two, three times you. Exactly. And you're capped out. You're capped out. That's, That's an right. And and business owners are are luring nurses away from healthcare systems with the basic promise of not only just higher pay but flexibility, mm. yeah. more time off, mm. um, shift choice. Yeah. They don't have to work weekends. They can choose whatever shifts they want to work. Yeah, okay. And so this is really hard on the nurses that that staff a particular ward and that are committed and dedicated. And get stuck with, you know, most of the night shifts or long weekends and shifts that they rather get a break to recharge. 
right? That that is exactly correct. Now, we can't just blanket across the country and raise the salary of all nurses by 40% to, to be exactly. in line with. Thank you. We can't do that because they're the largest, really. <laughs> the largest labor force. That's the problem. I mean, they're paying yeah. a percentage of nurses higher. I mean, eventually yeah. they'll probably hire all of us over there now. <laughs> um, but, you know, what is the answer here? What, what can we possibly do? Um, because this is really, really eroding the healthcare dollars that we have. Um, you know, in, in Nova Scotia, for example, they allocated $3.1 million for agency nurses at the end of 2021. Before the end of 2022, that budget expanded to $18.4 million. We can't carry on this way. Well, basically what's happened is that the problem that the nursing system is having, nurses are having, has not been addressed. So by the government, by those who are creating the, paying these jobs, right? So someone else, a private entity is like, okay, well, we can find a solution. And mm -hmm. it was allowed to, like, be the norm now. So it's really addressing the concerns that nurses or the healthcare providers have been having for a long time, and that is fair pay that's liv livable, respect for their skills, um, flexibility, um, just treated like they're part of the team. Right. And there mm -hmm. should be transparency and pay. Right. Like mm -hmm. it, it really should be. I, I think this is this is wrong well, and it needs to be addressed in this public health care system. Right. Well, we do have that. I think uh, employers are uh, bound to display um, wages on any job boards um, that started recently. Um, but, you know, the agency nurses, they're so expensive to engage. Their use mm -hmm. is dispiriting for nurses. Yeah who work within the public health care system, who want a steady job, they want reliable income, they want to know where they're working, they want to have the experience yeah. and, you know, feel confident in their jobs. Um, but as you mentioned, so hard to be on shift with somebody that they know is being paid twice as much as they are. And we're just not going to be able to do this. Do you think there needs to be some regulation that comes in 100%. or some legislation? Well, if we care about our health care system, there needs to be. Mm -hmm. Nurses are a foundation to running unit units, hospitals. We can't function without our nurses. So we need no. to pay them the respect they deserve and train them appropriately and make sure they're all trained. Right. And do you think we should continue with um, agency nurses? I mean, there's, you know, patients have to be cared for. I think there should only be rare exceptions. I'm not saying blanket no, mm -hmm. but I mean, it shouldn't be the norm. I, mm -hmm. I think there's, there's been exceptions like pandemic and like there's definitely there was a reason it came in, but still, I don't think it should be the norm. It should be right. rare, few and far between. Yeah. My guest is Dr. Tomi Mitchell. You've heard her voice many times before. She's an honored guest of this show. She's a medical doctor, a family physician who is also a productivity coach and her website is wellnessstrategies.com. Thank you so much for staying on the line, Dr. Mitchell. We're talking about grief, which is the anguish that is experienced after significant loss. And it's usually the death of a beloved person. It includes physiological stress, separation, anxiety, confusion, yearning, obsessive dwelling on the past and apprehension about the future. But grief can also take the form of regret for something lost, remorse for something done, or sorrow for a mishap to oneself. Um, intense grief can become life-threatening through the disruption of our immune system, self-neglect, and even suicidal thoughts. It's a very 
very tough place to be. Anyone who is human will experience grief in their life. Um, what do you see in your clinical practice for patients um, who've suffered a loss um, and are grieving? Yeah, grief is very unique and individualized based on you know the factors that impact one's response to this loss, but it is something that we need to recognize it's a collective human experience, right? We all grieve at some point of our lives that we may grieve differently. And I think I've said so on this show, but I see grief as a reflection of love, especially when it comes to um, your loved ones. And people often ask, what's normal to grieve? Because I've seen patients who've almost felt shame or embarrassment that they're still missing somebody and it's been, you know, six months, a year, three years or more. Mm -hmm. And it's just encouraging us, like, this is normal. There's no timeline on grief. You know, mm-hmm. we want to still be able to function in our lives, but that loss is real. That love you have is eternal. So of grief course. can be that way. Mm-hmm. And if you have any questions about grief or if you're grieving right now and feel like you'd like to share your story, give us a call or you can call or text. The number to call or text is one 877 399 9898. Grief is something to, it's, everyone has their own experience, but it's difficult to go through it alone. Would you say that's a fair statement? 100%. It takes a, often takes a community to Mm -hmm. help support you and different communities as your grief evolves over time, right? The, The initial acute loss may be different than, let's say, five years down the road, right? 10 years down the road. So, Yeah. And, you know, as you mentioned that some people feel embarrassed or ashamed that they're still grieving after a certain amount of time, but there's really no shame in grief, but it, but it can be hard to carry on. People can get triggered. What are some, uh, like some things that can trigger people, um, in grief? Yeah. Just the anniversary of that loss, seeing other people who are enjoying, let's say it was a long partner seeing other couples enjoying anniversaries. Um, mm-hmm. It could be just a fragrance. It could be a memory. It could be your child or somebody reminds you of somebody else that you've lost. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, if it's your pet, like where your pet used to walk. And when I lost my first dog, just walking where she used to go for her walks and seeing her toys, that triggered my grief. But mm-hmm. yeah, it could be anything. I know losing a pet is very difficult. I think it's completely underrated because pets are yeah. around. They don't want anything from you. It's complete unconditional love. Um, they don't want any money. They just, you know, are just love. loving. And love. Um, and then they are dearly missed. Um, mm-hmm. I have somebody who has texted in from Alberta who said, I lost someone I loved to suicide and I found him. It's been a hard mm. year, but I've become such a strong and powerful woman since then. Wow. Oh, I mean, thank you for sharing that. It must have been extremely hard just to mm. even write that text. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we can find strength in grief mm-hmm. as well. I, I do have a few patients who are dealing with a spouse that has a, a chronic illness or most typically Alzheimer's disease or ALS. And, you know, some of them have just retired and they'll often say to me, you know, I look at other couples and, you know, although I'm happy for them, you know, it was a life that I thought I would have. 
Um, I had a patient with stage four cancer whose husband was traveling all over and, um, and stage four cancer, if you don't know, is terminal. And, and she said that was supposed to be my life. I was supposed to be traveling with my husband. Mm. You know, that, um, you know, grief comes in so many different ways. Here's somebody who was dying and who was grieving the life she thought she was supposed to have. Um, I have Connor who's texted in from, I think Manitoba. Hi, I'm Connor from Steinbeck, Manitoba. I went through years of grief after losing my cousin like seven years ago to melanoma skin cancer. There Mm. you go. Um, seven years of grief. It it takes, it takes a long time. And as you said, a village, um, Mm, not easy at all, but Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much once again for joining the program. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Maureen. All right. Get some sleep until Mm. next week. Sounds good. Take care. You know, have you noticed people are letting their guard down? People are coming to events sick these days. I've noticed it. Nobody cares. They don't want to miss out. They've got FOMO, fear of missing out. And, you know, recently I was at some family events where several family members, because I have a rather large family, attended and they were sick. And then some were talking about others who came to the event who were sick, but then they brought a sick child as well. It just makes no sense. So you have to be on guard and be very careful because it's not just COVID that you don't want to get. You also don't want to get the common cold. You don't want to get the flu either. The common cold is caused by a viral infection, and it's usually rhinoviruses, and there's no cure for it. But there are several steps that you can take to alleviate symptoms and help your body recover more quickly. The most important thing, none of which my relatives adhered to, was rest. Getting plenty of rest allows your body to focus on fighting off the infection. That's all I want to do when I, if I'm sick. I just want to be in bed, and I really don't want to go anywhere the least of which is a party, (laughs) a birthday party, or getting together uh, for lunch with people. I just want to be in bed because you just get sicker. And I could see one of my relatives was getting sicker as the day wore on. And what fun is it? You come, you're sick, nobody wants to give you a hug, nobody wants to get near you. So it's no fun for any anybody. You also want to stay hydrated. That's something else you don't want to do. You don't want to start drinking alcohol in the hot sun when you're sick and you should be at home in bed. But it is so alcohol is dehydrating. So you need to stay hydrated if you have the common cold. So you want to drink things like water and herbal tea, clear broths that will help to keep you hydrated. It will also help to soothe a sore throat. It's a good idea if you do have a sore throat to actually gargle with warm water and salt, a good old fashioned measure. There are some over-the-counter medications that can help to relieve some of your specific symptoms like acetaminophen or uh, or, or Tylenol or ibuprofen or Advil, but you don't want to take too many of those either because we did cover that last week of the dangers of taking too many of those. The best thing really is for, is for you to rest. Sometimes you might need a cough suppressant. Canada here, we have codeine syrup that can be helpful. Um, add decongestants, you know, the jury's out. Some people want to take emergency or some other um, over-the-counter things, but The best thing is rest and fluid. You might, might, though, want to use a humidifier in your room that can help to relieve congestion because it adds moisture to the air and that makes it easier to breathe, especially if you're in a dry climate. 
you know, say you're in the desert or something or in LA, <laughs> you actually might want to add that moisture to your room, although it's probably air conditioned. Uh, saline nasal drops are really helpful um, or sprays. They can help to relieve congestion and keep your nasal passages moist. Um, also, there's a, if your uh, nares gets, your nostrils gets um, dry, can actually use a, a nostril moisturizer. Those can be soothing as well. You do want to avoid smoking and secondhand smoke as well because smoking can worsen cold symptoms and also it will, it will irritate your respiratory system. And please note that antibiotics do not work against viral infections like the common cold, although some people still ask their doctors for them and doctors still prescribe them. And it doesn't do us very good if we are taking antibiotics. In fact, it lowers your resistance over time. Additionally, there are many natural remedies and supplements that people might want to take, but the effectiveness is often unproven and it varies from person to person. Probably the best you're going to get is a placebo effect. And that's like 30% of people will get a placebo effect um, when they take something like that. But always consult with your healthcare professional before using any alternative treatments. Chicken noodle soup is a great option as well. And keep in mind, most colds resolve on their own within a week or two. But oftentimes I hear one week coming, one week with you, one week leaving. So count on it for about three weeks. But if your symptoms persist or worsen, or if you have a high fever or severe cough, again, contact your healthcare provider because these could be signs of a more serious respiratory infection. Preventing the common cold is often more effective than treating it. So remember, wash your hands. Practicing good hand hygiene cannot be overstated. Frequent hand washing and avoid close contact with individuals who have a cold because that can help to reduce your risk of getting sick. And who wants to get sick at this time of year? There, it's just awful. Um, so, and you know what? You don't want to get other people sick either. We did see a big reduction in flu and cold when uh, people were religiously wearing masks. So, you know what? You can always wear a mask if you go somewhere. And additionally, getting your flu vaccine can also help protect against some cold-causing viruses. So, stay well, stay healthy, and stay home if you are sick. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.